Welcome to History and Film. We are going to get deep into the Civil War today with the 1926 silent film, The General. And this was a film, I don't know if we ever mentioned it on the podcast itself, but I may have mentioned that it was one my mom suggested. Nay insisted that we do for the podcast. I believe she threatened to disown me if we did not include the general in our U.S. history list. And then that just kind of ended up with her uh, being a guest today. So we had, in addition to Logan Denning, my mom is also going to be joining us today. So, uh, mom, how's it going? Just fine. <laughs> you wouldn't have seen this movie if it weren't for me. I know Logan, you saw it in class. Just, yeah, so, uh, right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you. So when I was in high school, were you showing it yet, or did that come after? I don't. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. So yes, Logan, you would have first watched this in mom's class, right? Was this movie out yet when you were in high school, Rich? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dude. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. So, so Logan, you did see it in mom's class, no, no doubt. Yeah. This yeah. A, that was actually. The first time that I watched it, I think I've maybe seen it one or two other times since then. It okay. is a fun movie to watch. Yes. It's my go-to um, if I'm like, if I want to show a friend a silent movie and like introduce them to silent movies, mm-hmm. it's a good one to show, which I assume is the reason that one of the reasons that we watch it in class is because it is fun and entertaining as a, as a silent movie. And it's a, uh, it can. That is one of the main reasons you saw it in class. Yeah. <laughs> it shows you how good storytelling can be without using dialogue. Yeah. Yes. In silent films in general, they do always do the thing where they, they'll cut to the title cards, but they do it less than you would think. You'll see two characters like exchange dialogue. You don't need to know the exact words they say, and they don't even bother showing you. They only kind of show you the title cards when you really mm-hmm. need to know what was what was said. Do you remember, Logan, what your initial impressions were as a high schooler watching this movie? I loved it. I had okay. a blast. Even even then, okay. I thought Buster Keaton was hilarious. I I absolutely loved it. Okay. Then, mom, how did this movie first come on your radar? When did you first see The General, or if you even remember? Oh, I remember vividly. I was in college, and I had a friend who collected movies. I mean, in that time, they were reel to reel. I don't uh-huh. know, it was sixteen millimeter. 30, he had dozens of movies, and his favorite movie was The General, and he showed it every Christmas. So we're sitting in Bill Schaefer's basement <laughs> watching The General. On a reel. Yeah. On yeah. a reel. Yeah. And I think it's at least two reels even then. So, yeah, that's how I first saw it. And it's just amazing. And he, he was the one that would always say, okay, no, not Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. You need to know Buster Keaton. So <laughs> that's where I first came across it. Chaplin is definitely the bigger celebrity from the silent era, but right, uh, yeah, right. Keaton should should not be forgotten. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. And then I used it in class in a, as an introduction to analysis so the kids could, I wanted to show them something, one, that I enjoyed, and two, that I was sure they had never seen before. And so I wanted them to analyze why they liked it, why they didn't like it. And it led to writing analysis essays and a lot of them wrote movie reviews. So Okay, okay. Did you ever have anybody that had said like, oh, no, I've seen this? Probably never. Uh, no, and I think okay. I used it for a good 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we're talking 500 kids. I don't think any of them had ever seen it or even heard of it. 
I'm trying to think. We're also, I, I recently did watch, well, about a year ago, I guess, I watched uh, Sherlock Jr., which has the the facade of the house falling over him. I thought that was Steamboat Bill Jr. I'm sorry. I said the wrong Jr. You're right. Steamboat Bill Jr. is that one. Yes. Uh, I'm trying yeah. to think of other classic. Key, I mean, the. Those, those are the three titles I always think of. And frankly, besides The General and Steamboat Bill Jr., I don't know that I've seen any of the others more than once, if that many of them. So. Okay. Okay. For me, the most iconic shot in The General is the. I guess we're getting ahead into the movie here. We're going to be spoiling it, of course, but, but it is. 97 years <laughs> yeah. old, so I there you go. get over it. Uh, when the when the train, which actually be, would be the Texas, falls into the ravine there on the burning bridge, mm-hmm. that shot is just so amazing for for a 1926 movie. Just the fact that it, and just, it also highlights the, I don't know, you think of like a Christopher Nolan always using practical effects because they look better. It, it, you're right. I mean, because like, there's, there's, see crappy CG that doesn't look near as good as this shot from 1926 because you, when you really do a thing, right. it just looks better. Well, and at the time, I've, what I found in my research is that it was the most expensive shot ever in silent movie oh. history. It cost him over $40,000 over 40, to do that one shot. That one shot. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. And you were saying they actually had to build the bridge because they couldn't find one? They had to build the bridge. They they looked around and they couldn't find the right bridge. And so they had to actually build a bridge so that they could demolish it with the train. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so let's, uh, we will we'll definitely dive into Buster Keaton and, and the movie more. Uh, but first, I want to get into, uh, bring, us, bring us up to speed into where we're at in the actual timeline here with the beginnings of the Civil War. So uh, we talked about leading Kansas and Santa Fe Trail. And we talked a little bit about how the Civil War was, you know, in the cultural zeitgeist with gangs in New York and how they were dealing with the draft riots and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the fighting itself, so we mentioned that bleeding Kansas was in some ways the war before the war. Some of the conflicts there, there could be considered uh, the start of the Civil War. But the true fighting between the North and the South that is, you know, the Civil War that we know today follows, like we've mentioned, the Election of Abraham Lincoln as president. He was a known abolitionist, even though he didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily advocating that as a platform. Like I'm going to get elected president and in slavery, that wasn't necessarily his platform. But that was the ideology that the Republican Party was established upon, and he was the Republican candidate. So when he takes office or gets elected, the Southern states, first South Carolina, start seceding from the Union, and then what leads to the actual conflict is you now have these states that consider themselves a new nation, the Confederacy. Well, there's a U.S. fort, Sumter, Sumter, I would say it wrong, uh, Sumter, off the coast of South Carolina, and the newly formed Confederacy is like, hey, U.S., you other country, you need to get your troops out of our territory. And the U.S. troops stationed at Fort Sumter are like, uh, no. (laughs) And so the South attacks, thus beginning the Civil War. The South wins that battle. And the North, again, it's, I don't know, I don't know at what point, Logan, you may know at what point they started using terms North and South and Union and Confederacy and all those kinds of things. But the Union wants to take the fort back, wants to rally troops, go down and take Fort Sumter back. And then here, four more states kind of that are on the border refuse to fight their neighbors. And so they actually succeed also after this call to action and join the Confederacy as well. And then the fighting kind of continues from there. And now in theory, 
the North should have a massive advantage from the start because they have more resources and a much larger population. But the South, frankly, just has the much better generals to start with, and that levels the playing field. And again, I don't know how much Logan did the battle-by-battle breakdown, but I'll just kind of give mention two here that'll lead into the movie. Uh, The first major battle, uh, so Sumner was April of 1861, the first major battle is the first battle of Bull Run, July of 1861 in Virginia, with the Confederacy basically stopping the Union's attempt to take their capital in Richmond. And then the North does get uh, a good general in place with Ulysses S. Grant, who starts scoring victories for the Union. And a significant one that happens just a few days, less than a week before the great locomotive chase pictured in today's film. Uh, In April of 62, we get the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee. Costly Union victory, but a victory nonetheless. And then that kind of puts us right into the exact moments of uh, what was going on when the great locomotive chase took place. Because we haven't mentioned the general is based on an actual event, although butchered in a way that makes Braveheart look like the most accurate film in history (laughs) 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 logan anything else to add on the historical context of uh, Um, of the war itself i guess heading up to this point because i just kind of did some bullet points there yeah not not really um but just one thing that uh i think is a lot of times uh overlooked geographically is just how close the Union and Confederate capitals were to each other. Oh, I thought that too. I was like, why are they so close? Why not put it in South Charleston? Why not use Charleston? Yeah, Richmond is like not very far from Washington D.C. Like I don't know what the actual what the actual miles distance is, but they're they're really close. And so I I don't know. I just that's interesting that they chose Richmond, and I I don't know why. But I guess why would you not choose something like? Atlanta or New Orleans or a city in Texas, like somewhere that's far away from your front lines. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, about 100 miles via road today from Richmond to D.C. So yeah, that's, that is that uh, is startlingly close. So let's do, I'm, trying, I'm debating if we want to do the movie first or the actual event first. I feel like I want to do the movie first. So in the film, we get... Buster Keaton playing a fictional character whose name is Johnny Gray. Johnny Gray. Johnny Gray. Oh, Gray as in like the South War Gray. South War oh, Gray. Okay, yeah. Nice. yeah. Okay. So very generic kind of Southern name. Okay. Yeah. Well, is it? Isn't? Uh, wasn't the term Johnny Reb? Wasn't that like a? Oh, yeah. true. Okay. A term that like Union soldiers would use to describe you know your run of the mill Confederate soldier, kind of mm-hmm. like in uh, like in Vietnam, you know, you had Charlie. Yeah. In, yeah. In. Okay. Uh, yeah, in the Civil War, they had Johnny Reb. Okay. But I don't think you could name a character Johnny Reb. I think that might be too offensive, so they just called him Johnny Gray. I don't think they worried about offensiveness in... Maybe not offensive, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> maybe not, not offensive. <laughs> um, although this movie is pro-Confederacy, so we'll, we'll yes. get into that That's true. As well. And, uh, so that's what, that is what's funny. So I, I had seen the movie probably whenever, 15 years ago or so, had not seen it since, and so then I'm re- reading about the actual event... And it kind of focuses on this Union spy that goes in and steals his train and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, okay, that must be who Buster Keaton is playing. And then you realize, wait, what? No, he's no. the guy chasing to get his train back. Wait, he's the Southern guy? Wait, he's the, quote, bad guy? <laughs> well, the the historical event, it, there's like the first locomotive chase in the movie. And that is 
kind of close historically. <laughs> yes, I mean, but then the flip, yeah, you know, better than the. But then, yeah, then it flips it, and it's like it. Yeah, it reverses, and then and basically everything after once he catches up is like completely fiction like is all 100 percent made up from there yeah yeah so uh yeah so in the film he is a right. train conductor who no he's an engineer not a conductor is, is there what's the difference i actually don't know the conductor took care of the passengers the engineer drove the train <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know that logan did you know that uh i didn't know that that was a difference i knew there was a difference i did not know that that was the difference <laughs> okay all right mom dropping knowledge on us okay so, sorry no, that's, hey, that's the point that's the point okay so yes, he loves his train and he loves his girl. Like I think in the Wikipedia article, it kind of says like those are yeah. just two. Well, that's the first the first title thing in the movie. Oh, that's yeah. what it does. It's actually a title card in the show. Okay, yeah, they're basically just doing their thing, and I forget where they're they're heading, but they uh, they 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 load up the the train, and when they're at, and actually this is accurate too. When they are at, oh shoot, what's the name of the town? I forget. Is it, it has kind of a distinctive name. Uh, hang on, I got it right here somewhere. Big shanty, big shanty, big shanty, big shanty. shanty. Yeah, yeah. So that is that is accurate. And also that in the in the film, they're parked a big big shanty, and the train is stolen, straight up stolen, while it's parked there for. And actually, they even they even say in the film, and this is accurate too, that they would stop for meal breaks. That, that was mm-hmm. they didn't have dining cars at this time, so it was kind of a common thing. Just all right, stop. We'll get what you need, and then we'll start it back up while it's parked at big shanty, both in the film and real life. Is when the Union soldiers, or actually a lot of spies, some of the soldiers, yeah, spies, yeah, people on, on behalf of the Union, going in, cut off a lot of the passenger cars, and then take off with the train. Most of this is accurate, but the big difference is in the film, they obviously have uh, Buster Keaton's girlfriend be in one of the cars getting abducted. Versus, it sounds like there was no. It was just the train. They yeah. wouldn't have had any uh, prisoners or anything right. like that because they cut off the passenger cars. And they go off, and we and again we see we see them start to cut telegraph lines. That was the objective in real life was to disrupt this connection from Georgia to Tennessee, so that they could basically have a better chance of. We mentioned the Battle of Shiloh, and so they're trying to advance through Tennessee. Well, if we could cut off supplies from Georgia to Tennessee, that'll make the war effort uh, run much smoother. And specifically, they were trying to. They were trying to break a siege, uh, break the siege of um, Chattanooga. Chattanooga. Yes, which yes. they, which I guess was was hard to do through traditional means, and because I guess it, uh, Chattanooga surround has some like terrain and water features that make it kind of easily defendable, and so yes. they were able to get supplies really easily by train. So that's why they wanted to shut down the rail line, right? Basically, starve it out, and yeah. And so in the film, we see them start to cut the telegraph lines, and uh, I don't know if we see them get any bridges really going but then uh right from the beginning johnny gray starts chasing them on foot and then he gets the little rail car <laughs> but what's funny is so johnny gray is fictional but the actual engineer <laughs> the actual engineer william fuller did in fact in real life start chasing them on foot and then via hand car like that is accurate right but they said it's also not as and i get that and that's what i'm saying too. Like, you definitely see then if i'm comedian buster keaton reading this account oh that's where the comedy is that's the guy i want to play chasing a train yeah. on foot and by hand car is hilarious and so it kind of makes sense that he would choose choose that but it's also not as ridiculous as it sounds because the trains at that time weren't that fast they might might have been going 15 miles an hour, which is basically, you know, 
a, a decent sprint. It's like it's fast, but it's not uncatchable. Especially if they're stopping to sabotage, it's not unrealistic that you, that you could just just chase down this train on foot, basically. Right. Yeah. That's. I, I was. Just, I was just gonna say that that it's. Uh, yeah. It sounds. It sounds ridiculous. You know that. Oh, he's chasing this train on foot, and it's like the train. It's not like a high speed train where it just you know flies yeah. out of sight as soon as it takes <laughs> off. Right. Like it's a slow chugging along, and right they're stopping for sabotage, and they have to stop for wood and water like at at mm-hmm. multiple times. So yeah, it, it it is the chase on foot and by handcar. It's like they were able to actually keep up with the train more or less that way, right? And then they in uh, now I get, I get a little confused. I, I I forget the details in the film here. In in real life, he gets an initial engine also to chase them with, but then the track has been destroyed, and so he has to abandon that, go back to foot, and then he gets another engine, and that is the yeah. Texas. The second engine he gets in real life, or I think it's the first engine he gets. I think just kind of they they streamline yeah. that in the film. And the longest chase in real life, which they do get to pretty quickly, is the Texas ran by Fuller chasing the general. And again, that's that's real, and we see it in the film. But then that's about the end of it because at the end of the real life stuff. So it the two big differences in real life as the Texas closes in on them. The crew, the union of the that's on the general, basically just parks and ab- abandons and scatters into the woods and and just kind of is captured over the course of the next two weeks, and that's kind of where that ends. And the other thing that I I read that actually is kind of I'm sorry, surprised they didn't do this because it is funnier is the Texas was chasing the general in in reverse. <laughs> so yeah, the. Oh, <laughs> the, the Texas is actually I didn't realize that. backwards. And so they're talking about people going through town. We're just seeing the general going within the Texas coming through backwards to chase it down. <laughs> and because because so much of that rail was uh, single track or single line. Oh, right. Like as they're as they're doing sabotage and getting chased, they have to like get off the track. Do the, the what's the. What's switch. that call where you have the little the switch things? I don't know what they're called. Right, yeah, but the there's that little they have to like pull off on that little section of track, let a train go by. Oh, and the side, yeah, the sidetrack, yes. whatever it's yeah. called. And so yeah. they were having to like hit those and like let trains pass them, you know, as they're doing this oh. sabotage too. So <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, well. yeah. So the union guys had to basically keep conning their way when they would pull off to the side. They'd have to be like, oh, yep, we're on official Confederate business. Yep, definitely nothing to see here. Okay, we got to go. <laughs> but they had to pull off and kind of stall and bluff their way through all these point checkpoints. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. That's funny. So yeah, and then then they're all they're all caught by the South, and some escape custody, some are executed, and some are later exchanged for Confederate prisoners. And ultimately, it fails. Like they are unable to break the siege of Chattanooga, and the South actually does kind of win the Great Locomotive Chase, and it, it kind of comes to nothing. But then in the film, they completely make a whole switcheroo. Where yeah. he, where Buster Keaton gets the general back and is now chasing, going back in toward the south with the Union guys now in the Texas chasing him, and it's almost like they saw which was the natural good guy, bad guy in the story is the Texas chasing the general, and they had so badly to they wanted so badly to make that happen, they literally just roll <laughs> reverse it, and instead of the Texas chasing the general north to the Union, it's now the Texas chasing the general south. 
And and then they also switched it to where like he's in enemy territory. It's like no, this whole thing happened in the South in safe Southern right. territory. He would have been at no threat at any point. And they have the Union yeah. guys like stopped off in this house and planning. It's like this is all the South. They're in Southern controlled territory this yeah. whole time. The and it's the whole infiltrating enemy territory was the other way around. Like they just completely one eighty the whole story. Mm-hmm. And again. It's it's amusing, and of course the practical effects are amazing when he he tosses the one log or the one railroad tie onto the other oh, railroad tie to yeah. flip it and get it out of the way. It's just like how many takes did that t- take to do? Yeah, not not many, but those are legit railroad ties right, that he right. used. They, those, those are heavy. Are, I mean, it's those. Oh, you should see the pictures in the biography. I never thought about Buster Keaton because he's always got the big kind of sloppy clothes. Yeah. There's one picture where he's like been swimming or something with he's got on like a like a t-shirt or something. He is buff. <laughs> I, I, it makes sense. <laughs> really, really buff. Buster Keaton was jacked. <laughs> it, it, it makes yeah, sense. I was shocked. <laughs> so actually, and so uh, I do want to come back to some more on the the real life story here, but then let's actually jump in and talk about. Buster Keaton, because of all the practical effects and the physical, he's very known for his physicality. So, yeah, Mom, talk about Buster Keaton himself and kind of where he came from to build up to giving us this movie. Yeah, he's. I've I've started reading the Buster Keaton biography by James Curtis, and but I'm only I had to skip ahead a little bit to get to the general. <laughs> but I'm so I've read most of his like early life. And I knew some of this before anyway. He was actually born in Pequa, Kansas, which is in southeast Kansas, because his parents were on the road, and that's where mom went into labor, and so that's where he was born. Because they were performers, right? Like, like... They were performers, yeah, vaudeville performers. So they're like touring the company country, rather doing all kinds of, I mean, dad was a comedy actor, mom was a musician. And he actually joined the act officially when he was about three. And the main part of the act was his dad literally throwing him around the stage and him landing and and all this um, acrobatic stuff that he'd started doing basically is when he he was doing it before he walked probably, but (laughs) on stage officially at three. So dad's literally throwing him around the stage for laughs all of his life until this was one of my favorite stories in the biography. The last time his dad threw him, because he wasn't a real big guy and his dad's not much bigger than he is. He was 16 and... um, Still, you know, like I say, not, not really big yet. But his mom was playing the saxophone on stage, and they were in, I forget exactly where, but it was New Jersey somewhere, and these college kids are in the front row just heckling mom like crazy. So dad gets Buster to come up and literally picks 16-year-old Buster up and throws him into the <laughs> audience on these four college guys, breaks a guy's couple of ribs, and another guy got, had to go to the hospital, too. It was, like, the funniest thing ever. But he says that's the last time his dad ever threw him <laughs> <laughs> to take care of the hecklers. It's, like, one of my favorite stories in there so far. But, um, yeah, um, in 19... He was born in 1895. Uh, in 1917, he met Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Also from Kansas. Um, I think so, actually. I can't remember. I didn't look up much on him. But he's mostly known as, he was a silent film star, silent film comedian. He had the huge scandal where he was accused of murder and actually went through three trials before he was finally acquitted. It was basically somebody didn't like him and kind of like, oh, you came into this hotel room where you found this girl in the bathroom. Oh, I always thought he actually kind of did do it because like, or at least he never escaped the scandal. Like I think it did kind of tank his career even if he was acquitted. But anyway. It, yes. Yeah, it definitely did. 
but Buster Keaton was like one of his best friends and he'd been his um, like assistant director and they directed shorts together and, and things like that. Oh, through 1920. So 1917, 1920, Buster Keaton's working on these uh, short, short films, short two-reelers, they called them, with Fatty Arbuckle. And then he started doing his own thing. And we watched the one the other day, Rich, when you were over that I insisted we watch the beginning of because I'd read about it called The Playhouse. That was just fascinating because he played in the opening sequence, he plays 26 different parts, all Buster Keaton. Right. A lot of on screen at the same time. Like almost like it's almost like the Malkovich scene of Malkovich, John being like yeah. John Malkovich. Yeah. Like 10 of them on screen at the same time. And back then, a lot of those effects were done in camera. Like that's not like yes. a post production yeah. thing. They would just rewind the film and just. Yeah, and just have them do the same thing, but they just record over the same yeah. the same film, which is that's that's so crazy. It's crazy the the one they did where he's playing nine different guys in this minstrel show. He's they said they divided the camera into nine segments, and the guy, of course, they're hand cranking the film to get it back to the right spot. So he's doing this thing all together, and there's like nine of them on screen at once, and then he's everybody in the audience watching, and it was it was it was like what about. To five ten minutes worth of stuff at that rich yeah. it was it was really good though it's worth finding on youtube yeah he's kind of funny so he's everybody on stage but then they cut to the audience that are reacting to what's yeah. going on on stage and it's like all these couples so it's like i feel like three different man and woman couples but he's both, both mm-hmm. the man and the woman in three different couples and like all have their own little idiosyncrasies and little character it's quirks so funny all just buster keaton yeah it's it's kind of it's pretty funny it's it was great but yeah that's his background like I said, he started, he's been doing that, did the acrobatic stuff all his life. And so it was just natural to him. He did, I forget which movie he was making. He was making one. He actually fell and broke and ended up, couldn't work for five months because he'd broken his leg. But that only happened like one time. That was before the general. What was his first feature film then? Or do you know off the top of your head? Uh, not off the top of my head. I could look it up, but it was. So a lot of this seems to be also just kind of right place, right time, where you have these physical vaudeville mm-hmm. performers at the same time when feature or short films, the, the movie technology is starting. Right. We talked about that. Or if you listen to our episode on Hugo and talking about George Melies and the beginnings of cinema and, and just kind of he was in the right place at the right time with the technology and mm-hmm. some of the stuff he had done with, uh, you know, slide, or not sleight of hand, but just like illusionist performance type stuff. And then, yeah, the vaudeville type guys get into it. And it's, so it's, it's very interesting to just kind of see the progression as yeah. uh, we get into the early days of Hollywood and silent film here. Well, the the reason the vaudeville people got involved and, and the, the Keatons were like top-notch vaudeville people. You know, there was some of the top-of-the-line people. But they were rich enough that, when, you know, they're, they're touring all over the country. Well, in the summertime, it's so hot because there's no air conditioning, right? Mm. So the, the top people and Joe Keaton had bought basically what ended up being some kind of compound thing in Michigan. And all the top people are like summering in Michigan uh-huh. together, you know, for two or three months to avoid the heat. And somehow Buster found, they found the movies, you know, the little short reel things they used to do. And he went out to California and just started working. Right. It makes sense. It's like, oh, hey, this new thing, I could go get into that. Yeah. 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 And he's, he's like, you know, what would he have been? He was in his early 20s. So. Yeah. Again, so, so much that is, uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about that. A lot, a lot of success uh, stories are just kind of like being in the right place at the right time with the right skill set. Right, right. And he definitely had that. I, I always think of this. Is that Serena Williams quote uh, where you know he's kind of you do all this all this preparation not knowing when the moment's going to come. And so yeah, he had done all this training as yeah. a vaudevillian 
which I mean, if he'd only ever been that, no one would know his name today. But he has those skill sets, that, that skill set to be then yeah. this early Hollywood guy that is doing all these innovative things. And yeah, so it's hard to talk about. We always talk about Oscar-y stuff, but like this predates the Oscars. We're we're about a year or two before the right. first Oscars, yeah. so it's hard to say where this would have ranked on Rotten Tomatoes. It is a ninety-two slash ninety-two, which. I'm like, unless you're just a strict historian as a critic, like, why does it, what, what is there to knock uh, up this film about? Like, if you don't like this film, you don't like any silent film, right? I mean. Yeah. The preview audience, you know, stood up and they're, they're like going crazy for it. But it was really groundbreaking in the sense of, of the way he got his laughs. Because after I started reading more about the, the reviews at the time, it basically got panned by the critics. Oh, really? Because it wasn't funny. It wasn't slapstick, pie-in-your-face, that kind of fall-down funny that they were really used to in a comedy. Uh, and so, because it has all these dramatic and exciting elements. Right, which makes it better, but they thought that made it worse, yeah. It, they didn't like it, so it basically didn't, it was, of course, it was like the most expensive movie I've ever made at its time, and it didn't make its money back. And mm. it really hurt Keaton's career in the long run, because he, you know, talkies are just now starting to come in. And, right. Yeah, I haven't got quite to the part where he's made his first talkie yet. So, But I did notice uh, Walter Kerr, Carr, who was 1940s, 50s, uh, come on, brain. Engineer, um, conductor. Critic, film critic. No, no, film critic, film critic. And he was at teaching some class somewhere, and he was talking about comedy, and he um, he's showing this to this group of, of students, and he goes, I saw the. He says a few years ago through the services of the Museum of Modern Art, I saw the General again. I couldn't believe my eyes. It not only hadn't dated; it was funnier than it had been the first time. Distrusting his own objectivity, Kerr tried the film out on a group of graduate students he was teaching, mixing in examples of Langdon and Lloyd as well. After a reel or so, they had abandoned their notebooks and forgotten completely that they were watching a twenty-year-old comedy. The General was quite literally the funniest film these people weaned on talking films had ever seen. So it's like, you know, it grew into it. It grew into its audience, I guess. Is that what I want to say? Or, or the audience caught up with what he was trying to do. I do want to then talk about, get, get more in detail on the actual event here. So, and again, so it's kind of when I was reading it before rewatching it, I just kind of kind of assumed because the main character, when you're reading the account of the actual great locomotive chase, as it came to be called, mm-hmm. you just assumed that Keaton was playing the protagonist in that account, which is, uh, yeah, James Andrews was the the guy whose idea it was. So he was a spy slash scout for the Union in Kentucky, who was originally from Virginia. And he wasn't actually an enlisted Union soldier, which I'm guessing because he, like, lived in Kentucky and didn't move to the north. So, yeah, so he kind of, he was uh, on the Union side and spying and stuff for them. Let's see. And it was it was his idea. So after the north had taken Nashville, they wanted to move on to Chattanooga. And Andrews kind of approaches the general with uh and it wasn't actually grant it was it was someone underneath grant with this idea that hey i'm going to take a team into georgia and we'll disrupt these these lines the general was uh ormsby mitchell oh the oh yes yes yeah and you'll you'll hear this event called either the andrews raid or the mitchell raid because uh yeah of the the people in charge there the the group the group of guys that was carrying out the raid called themselves the andrews raiders 
Okay, there you go. Yes, after the guy whose idea it was. Yeah. Right. And this was also... Did you see this? This was actually like their second attempt at this raid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. It kind of just the weather just kind of got in the way the first time around, right? Or something? No. So, well, the, the, weather, the weather delayed the second one because it was originally going to go on the 10th, but then it ended up going on the 12th because of weather. But they tried back in March of um, 1862. Basically, Andrews had this guy lined up who was an engineer in Marietta, Georgia, who was going to defect to the Union That's right. uh, with his train. And the object of that mission was to try and destroy the railroad bridge at uh, Bridgeport, Alabama. But when Andrews and all of his raiders got to, Mar- got to uh, Marietta, the engineer wasn't there. He had like been pressing to service somewhere else. And so he, they just mm. they showed up and they didn't have a they didn't have an engineer so they just had to kind of say all right well uh, we can't take a train and they just had to leave. But Marietta's where Johnny Gray is from in the movie. Yeah, yeah so that right. all, yeah it'll kind of kind of tracks there. Yeah, they they were gonna they thought about trying anyway, but Andrews asked all of his guys, "Do any of you know how to drive a train?" And none of them did, so they had to abandon. <laughs> oh. And it said that that two of the raiders uh, they weren't part of the actual like train crew they were tasked with cutting the uh telegraph lines and they actually got confronted by confederate soldiers and successfully bullshitted their way saying that they were actually <laughs> repairmen for the telegraph lines and that they weren't oh sabotaging gosh. them they were there to fix them and the the confederate soldiers bought it and those guys ended up being able to escape back north yeah, that's that's funny. Yes, yeah, so we kind of mentioned how it it ultimately didn't succeed because and honestly William Fuller was kind of commended by the South because if he hadn't so doggedly pursued uh, the general, they might have actually been able to have more time to do more damage. And because he was so persistent in getting after them right away, it did kind of help uh, derail the whole thing. So he was commended for that by the South We because we mentioned they kind of ended up scattering. And also, too, so they, they did cut a lot of telegraph lines, but because there had been rain recently... They're trying to burn these bridges, and they wouldn't catch fire because it was too wet. And so they weren't able to do near as much damage uh, as they had hoped. See, that would have been funny. That would have been a funny scene, watching Buster <laughs> yeah. Keaton try to set a wet bridge on fire. <laughs> no, but but in the, when they when they filmed the movie, when you know, the train's going by those fields, yeah. mm-hmm. they actually sparked fires, and they, they, the forest fires and field fires, and the extras had to take off their jackets and whip, you know, and stop. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And yeah, started, that's... they even called some, some, some of the, they were National Guardsmen were a lot of the, the people they called in as extras, used as extras. Uh-huh. And some of them had actually been dismissed already, and they went and got them and got them to come back. But by the time they got back, the fire had been put out. Huh. But they all got paid anyway. So it was crazy. And you said it was actually filmed in Oregon, right? Not Georgia or Tennessee? Oregon, yeah. Right. They actually asked to use the original train because it's on the the general oh, right. is actually you can go see it um, yeah. and and somewhere in in Tennessee I think I forget exactly probably in Chattanooga but then they found out that the the South was going to be portrayed as the winners and they said like no <laughs> and then they and uh-huh. then they they looked around and somebody had been on vacation in Oregon and said well hey it kind of looks like the same kind of terrain so they filmed it in Oregon. Speaking of fires, that was something I thought about uh, watching the movie was, you know, because all that stuff had to be done practically, I was just thinking about, like, all the toxic exposure that the cast and crew were going through, like, 
Like when he had to drive the locomotive through the burning tunnel. Through the and burning it's like, bridge. And it's like all that smoke and like this probably lead paint too. Like it was probably just oh no, just oh, absolutely yeah. horrible for these people's health. All the crazy stunts and uh, and effects that they were doing back in the back in the twenties. Okay, this this is the thing that that shocked me because it was said like one of the most dangerous stunts, and you're never going to believe it. At the beginning, after at, uh, toward the beginning of the movie, after. Annabelle has rejected him, and he's all sad, and he sits on the, the, the train crossbar and goes through the, you know, as it goes into the, as the guy's parking it. Yeah, right. They said that was probably the most dangerous stunt because... You get pinched, you lose your leg? <laughs> well, no, because if, if they, because he's going into the, the garage or whatever they call where they keep the train, right? That if they didn't brake just correctly, the wheels would start spinning and he's on that crossbar, oh, and yeah. he would have been killed if they just did that wrong. So he actually, even though he drove the train most of the time himself, it, but not there, obviously, but he wasn't. But they, so they got like the, a real engineer to come in and practiced it four or five times, and then they actually did it. And he's still like risking his life just sitting on that huh, thing. That's crazy. And that's just, I'm like, really? That could have killed him? Because, yeah, you think about spinning at Woodbond, he'd gone flying. And all for just that silly shot where he's just, Sad and going up and down on the on the little arm. All for that one sleep, <laughs> small little laugh at the beginning, yeah. Right. And of course, yeah, it, it's it's just crazy the stuff he Fear did. Fear was not something that uh, usually derailed Buster Keaton, though, <laughs> with his choices. No, no, <laughs> he would do anything. And like just the fact that he's, you know, pre-stunt man, you know. <laughs> oh right, right. Stuffman, Stuffman basically hadn't been invented yet because because there, there'd be no reason for it because the stuff the stuntman would just be the star. Like there was no reason to replace. Right. Yeah. 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 Even Keaton could do it himself or whoever. Uh, so yes, after after the the crew again, crew is not the right word. After the raiders uh, scattered and, and were and were mostly caught, Andrews, the, whose idea it was, and seven others were tried, convicted, and hanged, and then the rest, like I, like I said, either escaped custody or were exchanged for Confederate prisoners. One of the surviving for surviving raiders wrote a book about this adventure, and that is mm-hmm. the book or later version of that book that uh, came across uh, Buster Keaton, inspiring him to make the film based on it. Of course, <laughs> switching <laughs> essentially everything. Disney actually made another film about this same event in 1956 called The Great Locomotive Chase, starring Fess Parker, who we've talked about with Davy Crockett. Although it's a in a slash 55% on Rotten Tomatoes, so uh, no reason to see that. Uh, Ader- I don't want to say this. Adersville, uh, Georgia, has a population of about 5,000, has a festival every year called the Great Locomotive Chase Festival. And then, as you, as you mentioned, both the General and the Texas are on display in museums uh, in Georgia, actually. They're both in Georgia. Oh, in Georgia. Okay. And so, yeah, so there's there's so many things in this, and honestly, in this film that you don't think about when it comes to the Civil War because. You think Civil War, I always just picture, you know, the grays and the blues lined up with their must bayonet muskets and stuff, or whatever, firing and marching or at, towards each other. And I just, I don't, I never really thought about trains all over the conflict, transporting troops yeah. and, and taking supplies. And obviously you kind of know that trains were around, but when you think of Civil War, you don't think of the important role that trains would have had at that time. That actually, that's one of the reasons why the south struggled so much that's one of the reasons what like one of the biggest advantages of the north was that they just had so many more rail lines Hmm. than the south did because you know with the north being more industrialized you know they needed that logistical capacity more than 
more than the South did. And so they were able to move supplies and troops and all kinds of stuff, you know, and and just mobilize the more the North better for the war effort because of the railroad than than the South was. They just it was so lopsided. Right, is being a technolo- a huge technological advantage, yeah, and then and then and honestly, telegraphs like you don't think about the little you know Morse code tapping to say like, hey, the troops have entered this city, and they like, and we're sending these signals across hundreds of miles. Like, I just don't think of that as being an important part of the Civil War. I guess I'm still picturing a lot of letters on horses and stuff at this time, and I'm sure there was that too. But <laughs> but yeah, you definitely already had the importance of the telegraph, and actually, well. If you have anything else on the Civil War, we can insert it here. But I actually have a deep dive on the Telegraph that I kind of made notes for. Um, I just wanted to briefly mention that the all of the uh, Raiders, um, all of the ones that were uh, in the military, received the Medal of Honor. And the only reason that the uh, that Andrews and there was another guy too that was a civilian, they did not receive any kind of posthumous awards because they weren't military; they were just civilians. So they. They were just kind of out of luck there, but everyone else got the Medal of Honor. Right, you would think they would have some sort of civilian commendation they could give, but they just it's like, oh, nope, sorry, you weren't technically part of us. Yeah, I guess. And then uh, also the uh, the actual uh, locomotive is at the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History in Kennesaw, oh, Georgia. Okay. And that's the general. I think the Texas was at a different museum, but it's still around today, too. The Texas is at the Atlanta History Center. Okay. Nice, so they, nice. But they're both in Georgia. Yeah, so the the Telegraph, again, this is not exactly Civil War, but it does play heavily into the 19th century here and was a big, seemed to be a bigger deal in the U.S. than most places. So I thought this was interesting. Technically, Telegraph and the history of Telegraph is all just about communication, obviously, it's just super convenient and uh, important for a million different reasons, whether military or economically, or just people just want to be able to talk to people that are farther away from them. Uh, we know that today in the internet age, but technically telegraph just refers to any long distance conveyance. So the telegraph lines, those are specifically for electronic telegraphs. An example of telegraph pre-electronic telegraph would be like your smoke signals. And and stuff like that, and, and the flag, the the pinafore, whatever you know, ship to ship with the flags, systems of of lights flashing and all those kinds of things. All of those are telegraph systems, just in the days before uh, electricity. A big one in the United States was, of course, the the Pony Express. The reason, though, something like the electric telegraph can supplant the t- Pony Express is. The Pony Express was considered lightning fast because they could get a letter from Missouri to California in just 10 days. And just <laughs> so when that's the epitome of speed and you have this other system that can do it electronically, it, it got popular pretty quick. Oh, they were going to say, too, the, uh, they would use probably more in Europe, but like the whole signal fire. Uh, fire. So like the whole in, in Lord of the Rings, the. Gondor calls for aid and they they light all the beacons like that that was a real thing like Gondor is not real but like the the signal flare towers <laughs> yeah. like that that's that system of relaying uh the, the signal flares that that was real that people did use that kind of thing so I don't need to break down the whole history of electricity but obviously it was beginning to be understood in the 18th and into the early 19th centuries in uh I think the you know the, you know, the guy Volt was right around 1800 
1837, two British guys did make the first electric telegraph machine that could send simple signals over over a wire. And then U.S. man named Samuel Samuel Morse heard of this invention, or maybe even seen a, a prototype of it or whatever, and then made his own version with a couple other guys. And that's the one that became the industry standard. Was this this Morse model of the electric telegraph and it took a few years to kind of catch on but basically from 1840 to 1850 is like a big shift in 1840 it would have been like oh yeah electronic telegraph i've heard of that by and then by 1850 it was like vital necessity lines going up all over the country so like the decade of the 1840s was the massive explosion of of the telegraph What's what's kind of funny too is so initially and they just, they it just made sense in their mind. So initially the re, on the receiving end they had like basically uh, a printer that would it would straight up tap out the dots and lines you know the the long and short pulses that you know translate to the Morse code uh, alphabet and they would you know be printed on this on this strip and then there'd be guys on the end that would translate the code by hand and so tell you what it said, but. What they didn't anticipate is the guys got so used to it, just working in that office and doing that every day. They're like, well, we can just hear it. Like, it's we've done this so long, we don't need to look at the printout. We can just translate it in real time as it comes across. And so they actually end up kind of ditching the printers and make it sound louder so it was easier to hear because all these guys could just do it audibly uh, and just kind of just hear uh, hear it and write it down in real time. You know, I just kind of like the little things of how it almost becomes a language and people get, can get used to anything. Uh, Europe already had enough visual systems established that they were a little slower to catch on to the, I'm just going to call it the telegraph from now on because uh, we'll say electric is, is implied. But the newer and rapidly expanding United States was the perfect place for this to just take off. There was multiple companies uh, at first, but it was all kind of a mess with, you know, like, you know, a, a message might have to go through four different companies. And then if it like, dropped out or didn't make it like they'd all blame each other and everyone was just kind of or the customer was just out of luck so they end up kind of intentionally making a point to combine them all just to kind of make everything more uniform and accountability and that was the monopoly of western union that develops as the company for telegraphs the first transatlantic cable was laid in the 1850s um it actually quickly broke down just wasn't really prepared well enough to live in the ocean uh, but after the Civil War, they did get better uh, cables put down. And some of those lines put down in the late 1800s were in use through, up through the 1960s. Uh, and actually, the system they would use even back in the 1800s to fix transatlantic cables is basically the same system they use to fix fiber optic transatlantic cables today, just as, like, as far as the process of how they find bad parts of the line and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, ultimately, the telegraph was supplanted by the telephone, uh, which essentially uses the same concept but converts actual voice to the electrical signal. And this is one I think you've mentioned before, Logan. It's a video I was watching said the last significant uh, telegraph in U.S. history was in 1917 because that was when Germany sent a telegraph to Mexico trying to convince them to go to war with the U.S., which would keep them out of the conflict (laughs) in in Europe and but it was over a UK owned line, transatlantic line. And so the UK like showed it to us and we're like, uh yeah, we're gonna go with the war with Germany instead. Now I don't think that's 
the main <laughs> cause. Like when you look up the why the U.S. entered World War One, I, I don't think it lists this incident, but it was definitely one of the contributing factors. Is it Lusitania kind of credited with the reason we ultimately joined World War One? I? I forget exactly. I mean, yeah, there's there's a whole myriad of of reasons, and we were supporting the Allies a lot before we entered the war, anyway. But right, right, okay. But that that did that thing with with Germany trying to get Mexico to invade the U.S. that that was also a, a contributing factor. Okay, yes, yes. And uh, and then ultimately, and you basically just kind of have three big chunks if you think that, okay, basically you just have the old school, a physical letter has to be transported. So the first time we got to go electric, we go to these electric telegraphs. That goes to the telephone. And then the telephone's king until the internet. So you basically just have these three key electric message transport systems, telegraph, telephone, internet. And it's just crazy that we're only you know, a couple removed. And technically, you know, telegraph stuff was still being used even in conjunction with telephones until like the 90s and stuff when the internet took over. There was still a place in some niche things. And also Western Union is still around today, but I kind of don't really understand what it does. Like I get that they transitioned into like money transfers, but why would you still need to go to Western Union to money transfer in 2023? But they're still open to do that kind of thing is my understanding. Like, is it just for people who don't understand how the internet works and just would rather go to Western Union and do it through them? We're not sure they're using the internet anyway to do it. No, there's, I don't know what exactly the thing, there is like something special about wire transfers specifically that like there's only, I don't know, there, there's certain ways, certain scenarios where you would want to transfer money to someone where the only way to do that is to use a wire transfer. Oh, really? Okay. Using Western Union. Yeah, like you. You can't always just use like the bank app on your phone to do certain wire transfers. Maybe because like large amounts of stuff, they still don't want you doing like a fifty thousand dollar transfer via the internet. I don't know if it's amounts or it might be location based. Like uh, I think one of the things with wire transfers is location based. So I know um, there are a lot of people that will go to a Western Union or somewhere go somewhere to use Western Union wire transfers to transfer money internationally okay so i think that might be another another limitation on like you know general like bank transfers or something that you would just use you know either call your bank or or use your bank app um, where you would need to actually use a western union wire transfer huh crazy and and i wonder so do they still use that telegraph technology then to this day oh i'm sure that that is i'm sure that it's internet based now and i it would it would have to be okay okay have all kind of like crazy data protection stuff um, I, I don't know exactly right. how it works, but okay. But there's but the fact that their service still exists is kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anything else? Any final notes? Okay. Yeah, I, I had a couple of a, a little random notes. One about the movie. There are so many good examples of like visual jokes that have really well set up and paid off setups and payoffs, like super crisp. <laughs> Like in the uh, the scene, this the one that that stood out to me the most was the scene where he's trying to uh, get his girlfriend back on the train um, after they you know spent the night out in the rain after he rescues her from the uh, Union House and he goes up to uh, the train, grabs this big sack, comes out and it's full of shoes. So he dumps out all the shoes. <laughs> And then they go on this, like, there's a whole separate, like, visual joke of him trying to get her in the bag. And it's like, oh, haha, that was funny. He, like, you know, it was hard for him to get her in the sack. And he's, like, stuffing her in there. 
And then he takes a step and his shoe comes off and then he has to sort through the shoes to find his shoe. And it's like, oh, that it's like the payoff for all the shoes that he just dumped out. And I was I was laughing out loud watching that. And I'd seen this movie multiple times before and that still cracks me up. Well, just the amount of work. I mean, that when I'm reading the the whole thing about Keaton and, and making all these movies and the amount of work they put in to work on those gags so that they are funny and they are that timing is just right and they do everything it's just the amount of work is incredible you know that they do on those things it just is amazing that he'd spend you know 14 hours a day working his co-stars but oh well we didn't know buster that well he was nice enough but you know he was always busy yeah anything else logan do you have more notes yeah just just two more things uh one just the fact i mean i'm sure our listeners can can do this basic math but the Civil War was closer to the making of this movie than we are to the making of this movie. Oh, mm-hmm. right. By a lot. Like at Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the time the Civil War was like 60 years ago. So like it, you know, it'd be like us or actually World War 2 is even further away. It'd be like like us to Vietnam, which doesn't seem like that crazy long ago. That's how far it would have been for crazy. And then one one little uh minor little side note about the railroad is the fact that it was responsible for standardizing time across the United States. Oh, right. So before oh, before yeah. the railroad, like each town was just kind of like, it, they would just keep track of time on their own. And noon was just whenever it was, the sun was highest in the sky for that specific town. And so the railroad actually forced this standardization of time from one coast to the other coast and you know across all the towns in between because you had to you had to make the trains run on time and synchronize everything and so that's what what led to time standardization and time zones in the u.s it makes sense too because like basically before trains like in 1750 why would it possibly matter what time it is in a different city that's completely irrelevant there's nothing there's no actionable there's no reason to have a diff- uh, the same time 100 miles away like it doesn't make it doesn't matter at all but then once you have yeah. obviously communication and transportation that's crossing quick enough like well, no we actually need to know because like scheduling or with this whole system can't work if we're trying to tell you when a train's going to arrive but you don't know what time it is from yeah well and like just the technological advances of like of having a pocket watch like having a clock that was small enough to fit in your pocket no one ever needed that you know, oh. before, because it's it's like, oh, if I want to know what time it is, maybe I don't even care what time it is ever. But if I did need to know, I can just look at the giant clock tower that tells me what time it is in my town. Mm-hmm. Or, right. you know, look yeah. at the, maybe the church keeps track of time and they ring the bell at noon or something. But then, you know, when people are starting to travel by uh, rail and they need to know what time it is here, what time it is where they're going, and, you know, you keep track of, you know, how fast your train is going, you know, you need to use your, your pocket watch. Yep, killed the sundial industry, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mom, any other notes? Going back to, to the big train scene where they crashed the train, you know, this, the train just stayed in the river up there for, okay, do the math, 20-some-odd years until World War II when they they got the, dug the train out to salvage it for the scrap iron. Oh, really? And so it just stayed in the river that long. So basically the movie makes this big mess and just leaves it behind? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> So much for environmental issues yeah, back then, yeah, but yeah, geez. it's just that was that was crazy to me. Uh, 
not the same scale. But it makes me think of like I remember there's a scene in Mad Men where they go and have a picnic. You know, this is what in the fifties, maybe early sixties, and they have a picnic. Just leave all their all their trash just in in the park and walk away. Picnic over. Trash can just stay here now. Yeah. Um. Let's see. I'm gonna look up the date. April sixty two was what we just talked about. Yep. Yeah, it was actually it was one year exactly after the because wasn't the attack on oh on right Fort Sumter right. was April twelfth of sixty one oh wow and then the the great locomotive chase is exactly a year later April twelfth of sixty two okay yeah so that is the general thanks mom for joining us uh, Logan thanks as always and next week we'll be getting to the most famous Civil War battle with the film Gettysburg. <laughs>